Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, Stomping Jen. Yes, Sawtooth Frank. Here we are once again. Another podcast. Recording the Soft Serve podcast. I'm really excited for this episode. We have on actor, writer, and producer Greg Sestero. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Oscar-nominated The Disaster Artist. That was a book that was turned into a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Co-star of the cult classic The Room. Okay, And um, Greg also has a couple other recent projects that he's done. We're going to ask some questions about. Um, One is... um, a movie, um, two movies called uh, Best Friends Volume 1 and 2. Um, and he was also seen in one of my favorite series, um, The Haunting, The Haunting of Bly Manor. You love all those horror things. I love mansions, like yeah. gigantic, sprawling mansions. Yeah, but we should get started so and we that, can talk more yes. about all of it. Um, and also, I just want to say, um, <laughs> Greg has his deck, has directorial debut coming up um, called Miracle Valley. Valley, And that's going to be, um, I think, premiered in Salem, Massachusetts in the near future. But we'll ask about yeah, that. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Um, thanks for pushing me along because you know I'll just, you chatter, just keep rambling. chatter on and we on. We should start this show. All right, here we go. <laughs> Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Jen. I am not going to sing to you today. Oh, thank goodness. Yes. I get um, out of it today. I am going to so spare happy. Greg that honor. <laughs> um, and, and speaking of Greg, um, let's. I'm going to try this on. Oh, hi, Greg. Oh hi! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you know I had you know I had to start that way. Um, uh, of course, it's it's the natural way we we've started to greet everybody. Uh, it's funny. One of the funniest thing I've learned about like meeting meeting people and touring, uh, it's you know how quotable the room is. And in fact, I met this group of friends in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. They spent the entire day speaking in room quotes, oh and they God. survived. Oh God, <laughs> that's hilarious! Um, and and speaking of of the room, that is um, primarily how we got you here on the podcast to come and talk to us. You are um, going around um, the country, I believe, and doing some live screenings of the movie The Room. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, I am, I, during the pandemic, I just as it was starting, I 
had just finished writing, directing, starring, producing. Basically, I pulled a YZO um, and uh, made a new horror film because like you, I love horror and I've always been inspired by 70s horror, by cults. Um, you know, I love The Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and I just went out there and I made a horror film in the desert about a real life cult. And so throughout the pandemic, we've been working on it, tweaking it. And so now we're finally taking it to Salem Horror Festival on October 1st. And so um, I have been a touring, you know, cities in the, in the past month. And um, we're showing the teaser for the new movie called Miracle Valley um, before the room giving, you know, cause it's not, it's not public. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of giving our audience a tease of what's coming next and getting kind of back on track and meeting um, fans. You know, a lot of new people that are coming to see the room that have, have never seen it with a crowd. So I think during the pandemic, a lot of people discovered it and talked about it. So it's been cool to get back out there and talk about, you know, these new projects coming up. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, your you, your profession is in the entertainment industry and in film, and along comes this pandemic that you know destroys or makes it very difficult um, for for you all to even make films and and movies. And you know, a, as a consumer, I was devastated yeah. when they shut down the theaters because um, movies are right my absolute favorite thing, like my, my escape kind of from, you know, the day to day of, of life. And there's, there's something that I enjoyed as a, as a child, I would go to the theaters. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, could you tell us a little, just a bit how you persisted through all that? So luckily we had finished uh, Miracle Valley production just as the pandemic was starting. So while, while it was going on, we were able to work um, remotely on post-production. Oh, nice. Um, but but what was crazy is we were, we were getting ready to film like November of 2019. And our DP was saying, hey, it's a little, you know, it's a little tight. We could use a few more months of, of pre-production and planning. Why don't we push this till spring 2020 and then really take our time? <laughs> oh, God. And I remember thinking, you know, you'll never be fully ready to make a film. Let's just dive in. Everybody's on board. Let's just see what happens. And so I'm so glad we uh, pushed through. And what was great is we got to film um, at Falling Water, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, masterpiece in Pennsylvania. Um, and luckily, we did all those scenes, you know, before all this happened. Because I, like you were saying, it's it's going to be really hard to go all out and make movies the way we used to. Because mm-hmm. there's so many restrictions and so many... Um, things we got to deal with. So luckily I've been able to work on this film, you know, and, and still be creative through this whole process. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, you're one of the first, if not the first production to film in that Frank Lloyd Wright falling waters building, right? Yeah. I mean, you think it's, it's kind of funny. You think this house, I mean, Hitchcock, was inspired by it in North by Northwest. You figure, Hey, you know, this probably has been used in, you know, a Hitchcock film or Spielberg film. And then you look at, you're like, no, it was a Greg Sestero horror film. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, you know, sometimes you just got to ask and you got to, you know, you know, Woody Allen said 90% of success is just showing up. And I took a tour of it 
uh, and you know, out in when I was visiting Pittsburgh, and I just, it's it's a gold mine. I mean, it's just an incredible spot. I thought, what a great place to to have a scene in a movie. And you know, luckily we were given permission to do it, and we got to to film there. That's awesome. Were you able to film inside the house, or were you just on kind of on the we, ground? We did a little. Yeah, yeah, we did a little bit. We got to you know, I mean, just try to capture how incredible the angles are. Um, so yeah, yeah. we got a a good shot at it and it was just uh it was a great way to kick off filming yeah and i think that i think that's a great thing in terms of exposing um more people to that amazing architecture too mm-hmm. i mean is I, it privately owned or is it open to the public I don't it's think now so. it's now a world heritage site okay. and you can take you can take tours oh, cool. uh, and visit it that's cool. that's cool. Um, Greg, before we dive um, kind of deeper into the room and the disaster artists and some of your other projects, I just wanted to ask you just a little bit about kind of how you got into um, acting and how you got to this this place that you're at now. Um, you were born in California, right? And you, you grew up um, between the United States and Europe traveling around. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, Fran- uh, French was my first language. I spent a lot of time in Europe, and when I really fell in love with storytelling and acting, I it was funny. I'd taken a trip to Walt Disney World in Florida, and I remember when we were leaving, I felt this immense uh, depression, as twelve-year-olds do when they leave Disney World. That's right. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, it was it was summer. I was having to go back to school, and all I would think about is being back in Disney World. Like, how do I get back there? I, you know, being in that world. I didn't want to come back to the real world. So instead of doing homework, I combined my two passions, which was Home Alone and Walt Disney World. So I spent my time and I don't know why I did this. Or I'd never done anything like it before. I started writing a script for a sequel to Home Alone based in Walt Disney World where Kevin and his older friend, me, um, fight off the bandits that have escaped jail and now work as janitors at Walt Disney World. Um, <laughs> I want to see this movie. I know, for real. <laughs> and so I went I went full on and wrote the script. I mean, every night I, I storyboarded, I planned, I, I drew the cover, what the movie should look like. I did the credits. And then I tracked down John Hughes. He had an office in Lake Forest, Illinois. I tracked him down. I sent him the package with a cover letter that said, uh, you know, by combining the Home Alone franchise and shooting it in Disney World, you're going to get the great marketing aspect of Disney that could really help this film. And I sent I sent it all in, sent the package, and then sure, you know, I don't know, months month or so later, I received a, a handwritten note from him that said, you know, he's really impressed and believe in yourself, and you know, don't stop following your heart. And I was like, oh my god, this movie's getting made. And then I read the. <laughs> I read the legal letter that said we're returning your script like unread and unopened. Oh, um, and I was like, wait a minute. This, I thought this was happening. I thought I was going to be back in Disney world. I was going to lo- no longer be in school. And anyway, it gave me my passion and it gave me my, you know, my goal that I wanted to write stories and make movies. And, um, it was, it was pretty incredible. A few years back, I got to go on Macaulay Culkin's podcast and tell him this story. Um, <laughs> and so it all it all really came full circle. And then Disney now owns Home Alone. Mm. Uh, 
you know, because of the Fox merger. So they're mm -hmm. now releasing a Home Alone sequel on Disney Plus this fall. So it all worked out, I think, for everybody. Yeah, I um, hoping. But, but are you and uh, Macaulay Culkin gonna go to Disney World together and <laughs> reenact you know, that really script? <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> we really, we really should. And uh, you know, I, we we had talked about doing a live read of of the script. So. I hope someday that we get to uh, live out that dream. That's awesome. That 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 is fantastic. And how old were you when you sent that um, into John? I Hughes? was twelve, about to turn thirteen. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That, that I mean, that is really awesome that they sent you back a letter, and it sounded like that was part of that kept maybe partly kept the spark alive, even though they said to you, "We're returning you the script for legal reasons." It sounds like maybe them actually John Hughes writing to you was meaningful in some way yeah you know i i fully believed it was going to happen like i had a dream that john hughes drove up to my house and in a red ford explorer i don't know what <laughs> where that came from but he showed up and he brought the contract to my parents and um you know we're signing the contract and i'm like oh it's you know this, this is this is happening mm -hmm. yeah. and it was took me a while to get over it you know and then um I, uh, I, looking back when the opportunity came up, when the room, people started discovering the room, I thought I'm going to tap back into that passion of writing and telling stories because this is now a story I went through that I can write about. So the home alone, you know, saga planted the seed. Yeah. And before, um, before the room, um, and before some, other roles you had, you spent, you spent some time, um, in Italy too, working, um, as, as a model. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, it was uh summer of my junior year in high school. It was during that 90210 craze. And my brother, uh, you know, I used to always wear a hat backwards, like skater, long hair, surfer. My brother was like, you know, if you just cleaned up a little bit, call me crazy, but you kind of got the, you know, Dylan Luke Perry look down. Why don't you like, you know, rock that and go to school and see what happens, you know? And so I was like, it was a, such a fear because I was in such a comfort zone of this like kind of look that I had. I was really quiet. So over Christmas break, I went for it. I got a haircut. I even went so far. I don't think I've ever really talked about this, but I even went so far to make a fake earring <laughs> out of out of a paper clip. Oh my goodness. That I proceeded to wear to school. Wow. Um, and, and, I, and I changed my wardrobe and I showed up and everyone was like, oh damn, Mr. 90210. People were, yeah, and there, there was that show that Jared Leto was on, my so called my so -called life. life yeah. And everyone would call me Jared Leto. So all of a sudden I was like transformed. And then the dude who sat next to me in my chemistry class told me, he's like, wait a minute, you know, that earring seems to be like, in a different spot every day. <laughs> um, so then I was discovered uh, by a talent scout um, that brought me in for an agency meeting. And I met a few agents in San Francisco. And then there was an agent, a uh, really great agent who saw me and took me on. And within, I guess, a few weeks, I did a few shoots. And there was an agency in Milan, Italy that was interested in bringing me out. I was 17. I was just going into my senior year and they were like, we really want you to live over here and model. And I was like, Hey, 
my wish came a couple years late of getting out of school from home alone. <laughs> it, came, it came out of school by, uh, by getting discovered by this agency. So I flew and lived in Italy and Paris and got to model over there. Um, so isn't that funny? That little switch of just throwing the hat off and taking yeah. a risk and, you know, randomly people dug it. And so I ended up living over there and modeling and it was a really a life-changing experience. It was weird. My senior year, when I came back after living in Europe, it was like, I didn't fit in anymore with like my high school friends. It was almost like I'd be I'd aged to like 25 with just all the, the hustle and the competition, all these people from all over the world there. And you're, you know, I was 17 and most of the models were like 24, 25. So it was really, um, you know, a huge change for me. Yeah. And as I hear you talk, um, I mean, especially about how you're describing yourself like as a, as a shyer kid and you're definitely in the disaster artist, your, your character, um, is definitely portrayed or you are portrayed. It's not a character. It's you. Um, you're portrayed as being kind of a shy, shy person. And I'm, as I hear you talk about that, I'm wondering if, you know, like changing your clothes, putting on that earring, like felt like acting to you at all. Like if that was a form of acting in a way, like putting on this persona to, you know, when you're listening to your brother's advice about, you know, hey, you could go do this thing if you appear a certain way. Did that feel like acting to you in any way? It really did because I, you know, I was pretending that I was like Jason Priestley or Luke Perry. And yeah it gave me a, a new way of approaching things. I was no longer <laughs> Greg Sestero. I was a guy, a character out of 90210. And I, and I'd go back every night and I'd watch reruns of 90210. And that gave me sort of the confidence that I was, I was on a wavelength that the people my age weren't, yeah. um, you know, and it, I, I needed a change cause I was so much in my shell and it was really funny. Uh, junior prom was coming up and I, um, you know, I was so shy. I didn't ask anybody. And all of a sudden, like almost everybody was gone. And I was like, here I go again. You know, I'm, I don't speak up. This has always been a problem I've had. And it was that weekend where I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to show up at one of the most popular girls house. She's a senior. She doesn't even know who I am. I'm going to show up to her house with flowers and ask her to prom. That's like my last chance to make a splash or I literally won't even go with anybody. Right. Yeah. So that was like a moment I'll never forget. I, I showed up her, at her house uh, with flowers. I'm like, dude, this is so stupid. I knock <laughs> on the door, no answer, of course, which made it even worse. And then I drove around for a little bit and was going to not do it. And then I stopped and I had like, again, a moment like 90210. I was like, let's pretend we're going to film a scene for the show. Go back there, own it. And I showed up, knocked again. She answered and she said yes. And I just remember thinking you know, you got to take, again, you got to take risks and it, it all wouldn't have happened if I just, you know, didn't have that switch of, of wanting to change where I was at. That's amazing. I'm sending this to teenage you. <laughs> it's a, this is like straight out of a John Hughes movie. <laughs> this scene and I could like imagine it in my head. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it really is. And, and you want to hear something really ironic. Um, a few years, let's say, I don't know, 10 years later, um, I'm at a casting in Hollywood and I go to sign in and I look down on the sign in sheet and I see her name and I never forgot her name. No kidding. And I look up and she's there and she comes up to me and she's like, Oh my God, you, 
you modeled in Italy. Like my mom heard all about it. And we, anyway, we ended up catching up and it was like, so, so bizarre how, you know, meaningful that moment was and how, you know, a lot of times in life we don't, we don't do those things and we don't know what our life could be or those, those moments we could have. We just said, screw it and just went for it. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, the other thing I was wondering about, um, having to live between different countries, like, and go back and forth in my mind, that would require somebody to, you know, be able to put on different personas depending on kind of where they are. And maybe kind of that's a form of acting too. And I, I was kind of curious if, if you felt that when you were going back and forth between countries and if that had any influence on you, you know, becoming an actor and feeling like you could be an actor. You know, it was funny. One, I, I never had a great time fitting in with people my age. So the school environment for me wasn't ever uh, something I, I loved. So once I was free of that and got to go, uh, you know, model in Europe, I ditched the earring thing. Mm -hmm. I just... I kind of was a lot more comfortable. And a lot of people would always tell me, even when I was over there, that I was a lot more of like an old soul. I seemed a lot more mature for my age. Um, so I kind of was able to be more myself once I left school um, because it was more adventurous. I was now with a bunch of people I didn't know. It was a new, there was a new goal in mind. I wasn't chasing good grades, which I never really got anyway. But, you know, I was chasing a, a, something I was a lot more passionate about because I loved you know, I loved film. I loved magazines. I loved, you know, photo shoots are, are a form of creativity. So I was a lot more in my environment at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, so when you moved, when you moved back to California, after you were, um, done modeling, you, you, you studied at the American conservatory theater in San Francisco. Is that, is that where you kind of landed next? Yeah, I got back from from modeling, and I, you know, while I loved the experience, I, I still like film was what I really wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I decided I was going to jump into acting and and really train and try to figure that out because I had gotten a few roles. I was on a show called Nash Bridges, and I met an actor who hooked, you know hooked me up with his agent, and I had a meeting with the agent. They're like, you know, you need to be studying. We need to be able to send you on an audition and know that you can deliver. So I said, I'm going to spend the next three, three to six months just training and learning um, the craft. Mm -hmm. Was that training, did that feel useful to you? Did did you learn skills in, in, in that school? Um, I would say a little bit, but to be honest, um, you know, it, it wasn't really that transformative. I, I say at this point with acting it's really about just knowing yourself and, and, and life experience. If you have life experience and you've gone through things and you're comfortable with who you are, you can really portray those on screen without any hindrance. But when I was eight, you know, I was 18, 19, you know, I'd watch these movies. I'd want to be like Harrison Ford or Brad Pitt. And, and so the, the scenes I'm doing weren't, you know, they weren't really car carrying a, a tremendous amount of weight as you're watching on screen. So the more I've read actors biographies, you know, and I was, big into James Dean and Marlon Brando, you know, those guys were, those guys had a lot of trauma at a young age and what you're watching is really just them on screen. You know, there's a lot of anger, a lot of emotion. So I don't think, uh, I, I needed more time to just, you know, have life experience and learn about myself, but you know, it was a way to, you know, to go to class and meet people and, and 
learn scenes and just, you know, me again, one of the biggest things I think with film is meeting people, building a team. It's a creative process to make, to make films, to make videos and, and the, the better people you have around you, the more of a team you have around you, you have a better chance of making that happen. And so that's kind of what happened with me. I met a very peculiar man <laughs> in one of those acting classes mm -hmm. that changed the direction of, uh, of where I was going. Yeah, and that that peculiar man is um, Tommy Wiseau, right? It is. Yeah, and <laughs> and did, did you you is the scene depicted in the Disaster Artist movie um, accurate in the sense is that that's how you that's how you met Tommy was in a scenario kind of like that you were performing scenes in front of people and Tommy came on and just sort of. Um, captivated, captivated that room <laughs> the way that's portrayed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with the film, they're always condensing stuff. I mean, I, I wasn't that shy. Like, I, yeah. I was, I did, I had already been booking commercials. Yeah. I was like already working in San Francisco, and I had done some solid work in the class. Um, you know, so I wasn't. It wasn't, you know, quite that extreme. But I had done a scene that you know didn't go terror you know didn't go great and then tommy went up there and everybody in the class was sort of laughing and like oh my god this is so uncomfortable and he would argue with the teacher and then i just thought like i was really close on booking this movie with eric roberts that was shooting in the bay area at the time and i had like three callbacks and i think clea duvall was gonna be my girlfriend and Anyway, I didn't end up getting the role. I was really down. I thought, like, what's the point of doing all this? I'm spending so much time and so much, you know. And, and so I thought something that would cheer me up would be to do a scene with this crazy man from my acting class because I found him so funny and entertaining. And so that's why I approached him because I was like, this guy is just has a certain, like, funny charm to him. Maybe he'll take my mind off not getting that part. Mm. Yeah. And so I, that was sort of, that's kind of why I went up to him because I felt like I was lost and really um, discouraged and really heartbroken because at that point in my life, like getting a part was everything. And it was getting a role that would be filming in, L in LA. That would be a next step. And when I didn't get that, I was like, how long do I have to wait before that comes along? You yeah. Know? And then and you, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so that was a big, you know, turning point for me to just, I was like, maybe I'll just do a scene with this guy. Maybe it'll cheer me up. And then, then you moved to Los Angeles um, with with Tommy um, from San Francisco. Am I right about that? Yeah. So I in the movie they kind of sped it up, but really what happened was we we struck up this friendship. We'd go on these crazy road trips. He'd let me drive his really nice car mm -hmm. while he slept, um, and it was just sort of this. You know, I saw a really beautiful side to him. He was very uh, humorous and supportive and wild and it was everything I needed at that point. And randomly, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing after class? And this, you know, and I was like, oh, I want to move to L.A., but I don't know what to do. And he's like, oh, I have a place there. You can sublet it from me if you want. Mm -hmm. He's like, it's just empty right now and I've kept it. But he's like, I'll, I'll rent it to you for like 200 bucks a month. And I was like, OK, that that's realistic. I could probably pull that off. So he's like, I go next week if you want. Uh, to check it out. Yeah. And so, you know, looking back now, I wonder if he really did have to even go down. I wonder if he was just doing that to hang out. Um, but my mom wasn't really into it. And so we showed up at this, the train station because he was picking me up there. And my mom's like, 
hi, uh, so how old are you, Tommy? And he's like, oh, you know, Greg age 28. Uh, you know. Yeah. And she's just, she's just like grilling him. She's like, he looks like you haven't slept. What did you do all night? Oh, work hard, you know, it's okay. And then she's like, you know, no sex. And he's like, oh, what? Well, we all do. No problem. And I was like, oh, man, this is so bad. <laughs> so it was just like this, you know. Yeah. This meeting, meeting of the Titans that was super awkward. But we get down to L.A. The apartment is empty, but it's nice. And I end up, uh, you know, subletting it from him and start, like, attacking the town with headshots. I bailed out my headshot to, like, every casting director in town. Miraculously, I got hooked up with the Iris Burden Agency, which was an incredible agency that represented like river Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix, Kirsten Dunst, Josh Hartnett, like all these people at that time. Mm -hmm. And I like, couldn't believe it. I started going out on, out on auditions and I got a role, uh, a starring role in a really peculiar horror series <laughs> series called retro Pu puppet master. Oh. It was a pu puppet master prequel. And I was playing the young puppet master and I, got the role because I could do a French accent. So it was like my fourth audition and I landed this lead in this film and I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, you know, Tommy was such a huge part of this. I'm going to surprise him and go to San Francisco during Christmas before I leave to Romania to film. And so I went up to San Francisco and we went out and I told him, Hey, you're not going to lose. I booked the lead in a film and he's like, Oh my God, give me candy. And I was like, what? <laughs> candy. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't quite understand, yeah. but, uh, but so I went to Romania, I filmed the movie. It was such a high, it was, you know, I, I felt like I was doing star Wars or something, you know, cause it's your first speaking role and it's the biggest thing. So I come back to LA and while I've been gone, Tommy moved into the apartment. Oh my God. So now we're roommates. Surprise. Um, I know the, the film made us, you know, kind of move down together, but yeah. He was sort of inspired by that booking. And then he got headshots. He created this like Levi's commercial for his company so he could join the union. And we were there basically living as actors in that apartment. It was one of the most bizarre, uncomfortable, uh, you know, years of my life um, <laughs> that I spent a lot of the time out of the apartment. But it was sort of necessary because it was during that year that the room was born, you know, it was out of that, you know, difficulty of not fitting in. I know for me, I was going out on all these auditions and Tommy was trying to find an agent. We were like opposite ends of where we were at in life, but that sort of brought that, you know, that culminated in, in the, the birth of the room. And, um, was it during that time you were living together in that apartment that, Tommy began writing the room. Yeah. I took him to see a movie called the talented Mr. Ripley. And, uh, I just figured it's a good lesson in how to treat your roommate and how not to treat your roommate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so he decided after seeing that movie that he will, he can beat it and he's going to show Hollywood that he'll create a drama. People won't sleep for two weeks. And he, you know, told me i'll play mar the character of mark like this guy mark damon <laughs> like matt damon, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> matt damon. and so and and so he started typing behind the black curtains that he put up that separated his part of the room and he started typing away the uh, the script 
Oh, that's crazy. That's amazing. So he, he wrote it to try to best that movie. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. That's awesome. You, you, you were saying, like, if, if they think that's a drama, wait till they see my drama. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I've done some reading on, on the film, and I've, I've watched the Disaster um, Artist movie, and, you know, people... Um, People describe the film as one of the worst movies ever made, um, and that, I guess that's something that can be debated. Um, I was reading one review that said, "Yeah, people say that, but it's it's definitely not because so many people enjoy it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you you can't really enjoy a terrible movie." So that that was one counter argument I heard to that. Right? Maybe it wasn't the intended drama, right? That Tommy wrote. Yeah, but. Um, uh, Greg, when when you were when you were presented with the script um, by Tommy, I mean, what what was your reaction to it initially? Were you able to were you able to see kind of the potential in it? it I mean, it was so him because every character in the original script spoke like him, um, and I thought that was hilarious. And so I read it and I, again, it was so much comedy. It's such a unique mind telling the story that there's laughs on every page. I mean, you could get 10 best screenwriters in the world to try to write something that'll get a reaction like that. And and it's not going to happen. So I think it's a testament to originality. Now, back then I did not think anything would come of it because I was auditioning every day on projects that had, you know, major actors, major players and, you know, one day I'm auditioning for some new drama with William H. Macy and Dev Campbell, some other pilot. So I knew at the moment, like, this has no chance of going anywhere. Um, but I was still supportive because I knew what that felt like, you know, to try to get your own project off the ground. So I was mainly around just to help Tommy, you know, kind of get his project going. And I told him, I don't think I'll be able to be in it. And what 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 changed for you? Because um, you you're a, a major part of that movie. You're on you're on screen for you're a lot of it. You're a major character. Yeah, I. Um, so he bought all this film equipment. He called me up. I was moving apartments with this girlfriend that we're gonna we're move in together, and. He's like, hey, I have a job for you. You want to open a head shop, make $100? <laughs> oh, and I remember thinking, like, I need exactly $100. <laughs> uh, and so I went over to his apartment, and there was like 5,000 headshots, and I started opening headshots and calling people in for auditions. And we sort of started working together with casting the room, and I'd never had more fun in my entire life. Mm. It was like these actors coming in. It was giving me a chance to be on the other end of the camera and see how it feels to be a casting director. And all these people coming in and we ended up casting the movie over like, you know, six weeks. So I was sort of helping him. Like, I didn't think it was a reality. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, everybody's cast. Like it's it's ready to go, you know, and he had the equipment and the crew. And we had already cast another mark because I told him I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So we're ready to start filming on August 18th, 2003. We're out, we're out at dinner and we're just like hanging out and, you know, a few girls come up to our table and Tommy's like, so what do you, uh, what do you guys, 
what do you girls do besides drink? And I'm like, okay, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> um, so we leave the restaurant, everything's cool. And then he tells me, Hey, you really should play Mark. If you don't play Mark, it'd be the biggest mistake you've ever made. And I'm like, Oh, we're, we're, we're doing this again. Yeah, like, yeah, come on, yeah, this, yeah. this is done. We've already cast it. It's over. He's like, no, I can make an exception for you. I don't really care about this other Mark. I don't think he can perform the sex scenes very well. And I think uh, we're going to let him go. So this is your last chance. Either do it now or you're going to miss the boat and always regret it. Mm. And I remember in that moment, I had a beard and I was like, you know, I'm going to be there all day helping. Maybe, maybe I can make the best of it. And then he's like, and also... Just if you're deciding, I'll get you a new car. <laughs> and I'm like, and so I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Why not? You know, it's like he knew he had me at that point. I was like, all right, why not? Who's going to see this movie? It's it, It'll be just something that, you know, it'll be a blip and then I'll just move on. Um, and so I told him, I was like, well, what do you plan to do with the other guys? Like, well, we're shooting we're shooting the movie on two cameras, film and digital. So we'll, we'll tell it, we'll tell everybody that Greg is there to do auditioning for future projects. He's going to be playing Mark. We'll roll tape on the other guy and we'll roll film on you. And I told him, I was like the whole movie, like that's going to be, that's going to be insane. He's like, don't worry about it. We, we figure out. <laughs> so the first day of filming was so uncomfortable. It was so strange. It was the perfect way to kick off making the road. That it's amazing to me. Um, I mean, Tommy seems like such a, a unique individual. Um, and do you have any sense of where that confident, I mean, I, I perceive what I, I don't know him obviously, but what I've seen and what I've read is he he just has this confidence in himself and his vision. And do you have any sense of where that emerged from? Cause I know there's some mystery around uh, his origins. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he was, you know, a pre pretty successful real estate retail guy in San Francisco in, in the eighties and nineties. And I think he has a way of doing things his way and it's worked for him. And I think he continues to, you know, use that, structure and his confidence has grown from from you know the success that he's had so um he's very, very particular in how he does things and what he wants and um you know he's just continued to operate that way and did um did working did working with tommy on the film impact your friendship with him in any way Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that brought out a lot for both of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been friends now for, you know, over 23 years and just having something like that in your life is something that just it, it, it challenges your friendship, strengthens your friendship and uh, brings about, you know, new issues and new challenges. And I think um, it changed both of us in many ways, especially over the almost two decades that the film has been out. Yeah, and let's. I want to talk a little bit about why. Why do you think the room became such a phenomenon? Do you have any insight into that now, twenty years later? It's really baffling to, to see 
it playing around the world and people still talking about it, quoting it, you know, people have gotten married because of it. Um, it's been a daily part of people's lives and it's just something that has been pretty fascinating to watch. And I think for me, you know, in the beginning, I thought it was a really funny, hilarious, you know, bad movie that had some charm because of, you know, Tommy's personality but all these years later, having traveled the world, been at theaters around the world, made my own projects, it's really, really difficult. And maybe very few films, especially indie films, have done it where they've created a lasting work that people still talk about and and and, and are a fabric of their everyday life. And The Room is one of those movies. And it's just, for me, I've stopped thinking of it as like, oh, the best, worst movie or so bad it's good. I'm like, dude, this is something that I'm... I can't believe what it has accomplished. And to me, if you remove the content in itself, it's like, I think, you know, the film is a big success and, and continues to grow. And like, I'd love to create something that has that effect. And I'm sure a lot of other filmmakers would love to as well. I mean, how many, you know, I was a huge fan of don't breathe the horror film. And the second one came out and it's, you know, it's mid September and people aren't even talking about it. And it was out a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think there's something about the room that is, you know, truly a testament to originality and someone believing in their voice and their vision and, and, and having something to say. And, and it's so alien like, of course, and so different, but that, that is what keeps people coming back. Yeah. And, um, and it's popular enough where, you know, I think, I think Tommy does some of these live screening events as well. Um, but you can go or you can go around the world and do these, you know, events um, and attend the room and a viewing of the room, you know, much like um, Rocky Horror mm -hmm. or, or other cult films um, is isn't is a interactive experience. It's an interactive experience. Thank you, Stomping Jen. Yeah. Um, do you do you um, do you have any thoughts about what happens <laughs> during those films I, I have a list of things here that i was doing some research on this and you know um the people yell out various things as the as the room is playing um i liked this one one of them i don't know if you've ever heard this this was off of a website one of them was testosterone anytime mark your character yeah, appears <laughs> yeah, um appears on the screen but um spoons play a big role in the live viewing of the room. And I'm curious, have you, have you witnessed this? And I didn't know if you could describe to us what happens with these spoons. The spoons are probably the most unique draw because everybody's curious about them. And it's so random how it happened. It's just a frame picture of a stock photo of a spoon that is on the living room table that these film students discovered in LA and started yelling spoon every time they saw it. And they started bringing plastic spoons and throwing them every time it would show up. So it became a thing that just caught on. And uh, it was just by, you know, by accident, it was the script supervisor was like, Tommy, you need to put a photo of you and Lisa in the frame. <laughs> and Tommy's like, yeah, you know, this is an amusement park. You know, we don't have time. Uh, and so there he's like, okay. So it just remained a picture of a spoon and that became something that made was so unique in the movie. So a lot of times we make creative choices and we don't make creative choices that really help us. And that's kind of the, the beauty of filmmaking. 
And that's such like a butterfly effect choice. Like there's no way right. anybody could have known no. that that would result in one of the funnest parts of seeing this movie with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It is. It made the experience even, you know, more universal. You know, I remember Daniel uh, Kaluuya from Get Out and uh, he went and saw the room in uh, Prince Charles Cinema in London. He said it was the most fun he'd had in a cinema throwing spoons at the screen, spoons hitting him. And he was like, what the hell is happening here? So <laughs> he, uh, you know, it just adds a dimension that goes beyond what's on screen. Yeah. And, and um, you're coming uh, to our, our area our of area. the country, mm-hmm. um, which is um, uh, Massachusetts. You're coming to Amherst, Massachusetts to, um, at, to Amherst cinema to do one of these live screenings of mm-hmm. the room. Um, and how does, how does that typically, um, work for you, Greg? Do you, you, you do like a meet and greet at the beginning, then you watch the film and then there's a, a session after. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll do a meet and greet. We'll do uh, a Q and a, I also, I've been showing, I made a, about a 20, 25 minute behind the scenes documentary about the making of the room. I had all this, incredible behind the scenes footage that we filmed while we were making it. And then I put interviews with the actors about their experience making it. So it's a really great warm up. Um, it's called making of a disaster and it's, uh, we show it before the screening. We also sometimes do a live read of one of the scenes from the very original script of the room. Oh, wow. While Tommy and I, while Tommy and I were roommates, which is even more insane. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, and then obviously we do, you know, the Q&A and um, get to talk to fans afterwards. Yeah, what's the most enjoyable part of a um, of a tour like this for you? I think it's a mix of things. I think it's meeting new people that have never seen it or people that have discovered the book and have questions about the story. And then it's really cool to, um, to show uh, people what you're working on now and surprise them. Like, I remember, the, you know, before 2020... I had filmed uh, the episodes of Haunting of Bly Manor, and I got to kind of surprise the crowd with that. Because mm-hmm. um, people were so big into Hill House, and they were like, they couldn't believe that I worked on the new the new season. So it's always fun to, you know, get to reconnect with people you've met before, people you haven't met, and then share, you know, your, your work of uh, what you're up to now. Where was Bly Manor filmed? <laughs> It was up in uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. That I love that series. Um, as I was saying in the beginning, when I was talking to to Jen here, I just there's something about um, movies and shows that have haunted houses that I absolutely love mm-hmm. so much. Um, what, what was it like? I'm a, I'm a big into that too. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. Yeah, and hearing you talk, I can I can hear you. You're a long time. Uh, fan of the horror genre and you have your your new movie coming out miracle valley which is um in that genre as well um had you always had you always i mean what was that like for you to make a horror to make a a horror show like that it was i mean it was it was really fun i mean mike flanagan um i didn't know but he was a fan of the book of the disaster artist and he uh, I guess it tried to get the rights to turn it into a film, which I didn't know about. So, um, 
yeah, he was, it was really cool. He offered me the cameo on the series of the series. And, um, you know, we got to talk about his filmmaking process and his love of horror. And it was just a really exciting, fun time to be on that set, which was just absolutely beautiful and work with some amazing actors. So, um, you know, and then, and then lead into making, uh, the, you know, Miracle Valley. So, it was a great, uh, great few months there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, getting that warm up. Yeah, and um, back to the back to the room tour. I, I was kind of curious. You're you you must do a lot of kind of traveling around for these events. And what is the most challenging part of that for you? Um, I mean, it's it's different now because I think you you know you had eighteen months of of getting a chance to relax. So you know, now it's sort of just, you're just grateful to be with people and, and, and meeting people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think international travel is always challenging, you know, flying, um, to a bunch of different cities and places, but, you know, to be honest, like, you know, as an actor or writer, you work so hard to get projects that, that find a rhythm. And so when you get those opportunities, you're just really thankful for it. So I just kind of, I see a lot of it as a positive and a chance to, uh, meet people and make new films and have a, a place to show them. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your memoir. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read the whole title for people so they can go out and read this and find it and buy it. It's The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. Um, you released that in 2013. And I was just curious, like, when did you, at what point did you say to yourself, I really need to capture what happened in terms of my experience making the room, um, as a memoir. It was, it's funny. It was in Boston. We were doing mm. a, a screening at the Coolidge theater. It was one of the first times I'd ever gone with Tommy to do a show. And I just saw the hunger and the excitement for this movie and the questions about how it was made and who are you guys? And I mm-hmm. thought, a great chance to tell the story and 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 at the same time i thought you know this story in itself could make a great film and so i interviewed tommy about stories about his life coming to san francisco and i just kind of started taking you know a bunch of notes on what this story could be and um i pitched it to a publisher and simon and schuster i guess had fans of the room that were there and they were really into it and they didn't know what they were going to get. And I didn't really know what this book was going to be until I sat down with the personal story and the story about friendship, which hit me much harder than the making of the room. And then I realized we got to tell both stories, uh, what it's like to be a young actor, following your dreams against all odds, moving to LA, those struggles, having the friendship of somebody who's like a totally different person than you, but you guys are friends because you're clinging to this dream and then as it, as it cuts and alternates chapters, you guys are making this insane project that later became something that defined both of you in a lot of ways. So it's a lot of, you know, reminded me a little bit of adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, the Nicolas Cage movie, a little bit of Ed Wood and Boogie Nights. And I thought that's what this story is. And so nobody really saw it at the time. The publisher was like, we just want a book about the making of the room. But I thought there's this, this story is much bigger than that. And luckily they were really on board once they received the manuscript. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Tommy was supportive of you writing the book. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, I don't think he ever thought it would 
happen because writing a book is really hard. Yeah. And I don't think he thought it would be a big deal or it'd be anything, you know, but he was, you know, he's like the first person I told, I interviewed him. I talked to him. I was on tour with him while I was writing it, you know, and I thought, um, you know, I'm sure there's a few things he, he won't like, but that's the thing with Tommy. If like the only way to tell the story was to not shrink from the moments that were really difficult. And in the end, I mean, it kind of made a lot of his dreams come true. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we both helped each other out with mm-hmm. the room giving us a platform and the book giving us a story that people could relate to. I think, you know, it, they teamed up together in a way that both really helped us. Yeah. What was your process like for writing the book? And like, what kind of writer are you in terms of actually getting words on page? I just started, uh, I'd read every morning. I had a, I think I went through like a hundred books at the time, but I mm. read every morning. Then I go for like an hour walk. I take notes in my head. Then I'd come back and I just go until like 2 PM. And then I'd take, I'd stop. And then that night I'd watch movies that were in similar stories. And I just repeat that over and over and over. And then I worked with a really great uh, co-author named Tom Bissell, who um, was a journalist. He wrote about the room and he, um, and so we'd meet up and I would read out these chapters to him. He would like interview me. We'd basically talk the story out on tape. And then he would take those tape recordings of the chapters I'd written and the conversations we had. And he would narrate those, he'd put those on the page as chapters. Then we went back and forth editing those. So we kind of had a really good, strong storytelling perspective as well as all the details. And so it was, um, it was this fun way of, doing the book it was a ton of yeah a ton of we yeah. also had amazing and really helped help story and really helped it needed that were funny but you can really connect to them. yeah how long did it how long did it take you to to write the book it was like about a three-year project by the time it came out oh wow like from the time you got the idea to do the proposal to do, you know, but, um, it was, yeah, you'd go back and forth with the editor and there's a lot of great challenges. And it was just like, it was like a marathon that, you know, it taught you, it taught me so much about completing and finishing a project. Yeah. Putting on your author hat, were you happy with the 2017 film adaptation of the of, of your book, the, the disaster artist. Yeah. I had a really good time with it and the release of it. I mean, I think, like I said earlier, you know, when you make a movie out of a book, you got to really pick attributes to a character. And, you know, I think the book is a lot darker, a lot more in depth and, you know, Greg doesn't really want to make the room, but in the film adaptation, he's like gung ho and interested. And, um, you know, so that dynamic changed, but, um, it's, I don't think it takes away from the story. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask if, if there is something um, that's in the book that uh, you wish had made it into the film, maybe, um, that just they couldn't quite get in there. You know, something to tantalize our listeners to go out and, and get the, the book. book and read it. He dives into the mysteries of Tommy, his time in Paris, his life in New Orleans and moving to San Francisco 
and his his you know mysterious time as the Birdman on Fisherman's Wharf. There's just a lot there that I thought was really intriguing, and that's what Mike Flanagan was really drawn to was the backstory of of Tommy and the in the years we didn't know him. I'm tantalized. I want to read about <laughs> all of that stuff. That sounds fascinating. Um, so um, that that led you. I mean that. The Room wasn't the end of your on-film collaboration with Tommy. You filmed um, two movies with Tommy after that, Best Friends Part 1 and 2. Is there anything you wanted to, to talk about those with us about? Yeah, after The Disaster Artist, um, I was really, it was such a great experience to be on set, you know, with Brian Cranston and Seth Rogen and Jim. James Franco watched them make the film. I was inspired and I, I kind of wanted more. I was like, Hey, they, you know, they worked so hard making that movie, but they had so much fun and I would love to go out there and make a new film. And then I saw a test screening of the disaster artist and it, it made it drew me to Tommy in a way that I hadn't been. I saw him as vulnerable and I saw him as somebody who had never really been given a chance. Hmm. So I went out and wrote a screenplay in four days, and it was it was inspired by a road trip Tommy and I took up the California coast, in which he thought I was driving him up the coast to try to kill him. <laughs> That's hilarious. And it's like, I wasn't, but all right, let's roll with that. And so I used that experience and um, wrote the script, and I pitched it to him, and he's like, yeah, we can try, but, you know, I have to be, we have to be same height in the movie. That's the deal. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, and so, I'm like, dude, I'm in. Um, and so, making that movie, he plays a vampire mortician. He's very, you know, perfect fit for the role. It's written in his cadence. He's allowed to dress the way that he wants and have fun in it. He doesn't have to produce it he's not in charge he can show up and just enjoy the process and i really uh enjoyed that because i got to see tommy in a role that as a as a friend and as a fan i got to see him in something that i really believed in and so Mm -hmm. best friends is i think the, the best work tommy has done as an actor and i think possibly will ever do because we just treated him with so much love and respect and really pushed his performance to be as good as it can be. And, uh, you know, if you haven't seen best friends, it's out on uh, Lionsgate released it worldwide. It's out on uh, Blu-ray on Amazon and prime video and iTunes oh. and all that. And it's, uh, it's a you know, it's really a, a unique film. If you like LA noir films, we have to watch that yeah. stomping Jen. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, Okay, I, um, Greg, I wanna I wanna switch to your upcoming film um, that you're going to be. Um, are you showing the whole film on October first? And it's October first oh, in oh, Salem. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yep. Yeah. So so get this. I, I think it's going to be a pretty fun fun night. So we're we're premiering at Salem Horror Fest in Salem, and we are showing in an old amazing church. And the movie Miracle Valley is about a cult that involves a church. So it's like super meta to be in that space um, in Salem of all, you know, showing the movie. I think it's going to be a really fun. I think it's called Bridge 12 is the venue, but Salem Horror Fest is a really cool. uh, They got a lot going on. And again, it's it's in such an amazing area for for Halloween and for horror. So, um, the film we're going to be showing the whole film it's about 90 minutes 
and it's uh, you know we've tested it and audiences really responded to it. Some of the some of the movies people have called out that it reminds them of is like The Invitation. Oh, I uh, love Mids- that movie. Mid- Midsummer, oh. um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, a few other really uh, really fun ones. So I think it'll be uh, it'll be really fun to to be there in Salem and you know show something new. Have you visited Salem before? Yeah, have you been there? Yeah, a few years ago, I got a photo of Jason and Michael Myers together. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, and if you've ever been on Halloween weekend, oh, that place nuts. is bananas. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. Um what was it what was what was it like directing your first um film? Uh it was a lot. It was a big challenge and I I lived in the environment and scouted all the places, you know, well beforehand and that helped and the story was very well developed in my mind. So I kind of knew the shots going in and our DP uh, was great. We shot on Ari, a lot of handheld. So I had it kind of mapped out in my mind before we got there and the locations are so inspiring um, that, you know, you point the camera anywhere and you're going to get something interesting. So, um, the other guy, the lead actor, Rick Edwards, he plays uh, the priest. He, I grew up watching him on a soap opera on Santa Barbara years ago. And, um, you know, if you cast right, it makes your job a lot easier. You know, if an actor really fits the part, they're going to show up and give you most of what you need. It makes your, your job a lot easier. So I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the process of, you know, the whole writing, directing, starring, and, um, you know, a lot of it comes down to having a good producing team and making sure that you're in good hands. So, um, and just watching again, a lot of movies that I really, really love and, and figure out why I love them and try to emulate that. Yeah. And I, I was, um, creeping your Instagram in preparation for this conversation. I saw some of those locations and they're amazing. You were in the American Southwest. Am I right about that? Yeah, it was. Uh, we got to film at Lake Powell, Bisbee, um, just these towns that are like absolutely beautiful, and and the vibe there is so intense that you again you put it on camera and people feel like they're in a whole you know whole different spot. Were the were the people who live out there welcoming of a film production? Yeah, they were, uh, oddly enough, a lot of those people were fans of the room, and so they knew what was going on, and they were like, whatever mm-hmm. we can do to help, and we got uh, we got some really great um, old Adobe mission, you know, locations, and some really creepy stuff that would fit in for a cult movie, so uh, yeah, we got pretty lucky. That's awesome. Um, so listen up, folks. Um, is your Is your event on the first is it I, I would imagine if it's not already it's going to be sold out very soon is there is oh, there for the horror oh, so i guess salem salem horror fest is hosting it so i guess you know if you want to get yeah tickets or passes it's like salemhorror.com and mm-hmm. um, i think they have like a a pass for the festival so it's like i'm not sure if they're doing singular events but it's for people coming in that want to see you know their lineup as well okay so l- listen up folks if you're interested in that go out there and um mm-hmm. Go to the Salem Horror Fest uh, website, get on their socials, and get connected to out. that. Check it out. Um, another thing I, I absolutely wanted to ask you about, um, Greg, mostly because I'm a huge comic book nerd um, and fan, is um, you did a scene with Tommy um, that was 
done for the Nerdist Presents, and it was um, it was the Nerdist Presents Dark Knight Rises, where you play Batman and Tommy plays the Joker, <laughs> um, and it's I'm I, I'm not being cute about this. It it's one of the the more disturbing depictions of the Joker I've ever seen, and <laughs> and part of it is just like in my mind the way the way Tommy commits to that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you if you had any reflections on shooting that scene um, as, as Batman with Tommy's to Tommy's Joker. Yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. I mean, it was uh, the one thing it was, it was super hot. So I had the bat suit on and I was like, I was dying in that. And I, we do those scenes. And one of the things, the ideas I came up with was cue cards. So Tommy didn't have to memorize the dialogue. Okay. So we did a lot of cue cards for him reading. And so I, uh, you know, once we got that, then I do do the scenes where I was, uh, holding him up against the wall and having to like hold him up and like, he would lean back on me and I'm like in this suit and I'm like about ready to pass out. Um, it was just like, man, being bad, bad man is not as easy, easy as I thought it was. That's one of the um, thing. That's one of the things you always hear people yeah, say is how say. hot it is in those suits. But it's also like it's hard. What did I read about that? The suit itself, it's like it's like like holds you prisoner and it like prevents you from really being able to act. Yeah, well. it was it was it was a challenge. But I thought you know I'm a huge Dark Knight fan. I mean, what a great what a great challenge to like throw that on and do the scene. But yeah, I got, I did, when I took it off, I was like, Oof. yeah, <laughs> I'm um, feeling good. Yeah. Do you have a favorite superhero or villain? I would say my favorite's probably Batman and like the Christian Bale version. Yeah. He did a great job. Um, I ask him, we're, we're talking to a, a person later. The episode will come out after this one who read all Oh, he read all twenty-seven thousand Marvel, Marvel comics and wrote a book about it. Um, which and I learned about some characters that I never knew existed what, in Marvel. Yeah, yeah. One of them is called the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Oh my god! Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. And um, do you have a favorite? <laughs> so okay, Batman. Do you have a favorite villain? Is it a Batman villain or is it a different one? Uh, I'd say Heath Leather, Heath Ledger's Joker, probably. Yeah. yeah, that was an inspired performance. Yeah, for sure. Um, although Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was pretty crazy too. Mm-hmm. That was like an un, it was it's a whole different, different thing too. It's a different thing because there's yeah. no Batman. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know. It was if, a good day. That that movie was a good surprise. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. All right, as we as we drive as we drive towards wrapping up, um, I wanted to kind of ask you if you had any reflections just on you know your your many many years in the entertainment industry, um, just how how things are have changed, are changing. Um, you know, some of that might some of that might be impacted by what's happened with COVID. I just was curious if you had any thoughts. Oh yeah, over the pandemic, over reflecting, I just realized, you know, how a lot of the things I always wanted, um, you know, really came, they came true and they came true in such roundabout ways that 
we're so true to who I am. And I think sometimes we really want stuff that we think fits us or it's like, oh, I deserve that. But we don't realize to stop and think, what do we have to offer film or storytelling or our audience? And until we kind of figure what's out, what that out, what that is, then it's hard for us to proceed and, and pursue goals because a lot of times we're pursuing the wrong thing. And, and we're pursuing it for the wrong reasons, you know? And so I, I really got a chance to sit back and realize, Hey, you know, I've been really lucky in so many ways because all the things I love to do and continue to love to do, I'm not, I'm still given a chance to do those things. And I have the Liberty and the freedom to tell the stories I want, which at the end of the day, whatever level you're at, that's what we all aspire to do. Um, and so I was very grateful that, you know, I have people who support what I've done um, at any level. And it's, uh, you know, I just want to continue to go out there and, you know, make interesting, bizarre, inspirational stuff and hopefully, you know, continue to get a chance to show it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, thinking, um, hearing you talk and, and thinking about, you know, the room in particular, you know, what strikes me is, a, not being afraid of taking chances, right? Uh, finding people, right, that you connect with, um, even if, you know, even if it's in a strange way, right? Like, um, who aren't, you know, directly damaging your life, right? Like, finding people you can connect with. And, yeah. and also, like, persistence, you know? Like, I, I hear you talking about going out there and distributing you know, thousands of headshots in the early years. And it must've been so easy just to want to give up. Yeah. You're just like screaming into the void or trying to yeah. send stuff out and thinking like, this is going to work or it's not going to work. And it just, it's, it's, it's scary in a lot of ways, but at the same time, that's what builds your journey. Cause if it's given to you too soon, mm -hmm. then you don't have to work for it. And I think that's something that uh, I really learned is like, Hey, a lot of things happened for the right reasons, even though I, yeah. wasn't happy with what was happening. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you about this because I saw it on your Instagram. Um, you visited the Meow Wolf's House of Eternal Return in uh, New right. Mexico. We went to wow. the um, Meow Wolf in Vegas oh my God, earlier my. in the summer. Yeah. They had converted a supermarket into this like surrealistic experience. So I just wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts to share about... Um, Meow Wolf's House of Eternal Return, what that was like for you? Yeah, I, it was it was funny. It was sort of like a, an accident because I um, I was there uh, doing a show in Santa Fe and I um, I got delayed and had to fly out from a different spot and I got in one morning returning to Santa Fe and I had a morning free. And if you've ever been to Santa Fe, New Mexico, it's absolutely beautiful. No. And the airport's like so charming. You just pull up and park and you can park for a week and nobody cares. Oh my God. Um, and so they messaged me on Twitter, I think, and they said, if you want to come visit, come visit. We'll give you a pass. And so I got to go in there. And I'm the next thing I'm doing is I'm writing a UFO uh, abduction movie. <laughs> And so I got so many photos being in it was such an inspiring place to be in. I got so many photos of it, of the 
you know, and I've kind of used that, you know, inspiration for the new script that I've been writing. And it was just, uh, you know, it's kind of an artist's dream in so many ways. For real, for real. They just opened up their third installation in Colorado called Convergence Station. Is that the one that's just like a house? No, no. That's the one that he went to. Oh, that's the one that Greg went to. That's the house in Santa Fe. And the one we went to is the supermarket and the one in, in Denver, I think it's Denver. Yeah, yeah, is a train station called Conver- Convergence oh, Station, and then that's they're awesome. also building one in DC. But I don't know what the theme is for that one. Yep, um, Greg, I'm not going to ask you to reveal too many details about the script you're working on, but I, um, longtime listeners of this podcast will know <laughs> I follow what's going on with UFOs, and um, now we call them UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. I follow this. We v- call them. <laughs> Those of us who take this seriously <laughs> the do. People in the know. Yeah. Do you have any? Do you do you follow this subject at all? Um, and is it something you're um, you're writing a script about it? So can you tell us about your interest in the in the topic? Yeah. I uh, when I was living in Arizona, I got really into it. I, I was a big fan of Fire in the Sky, um, and I'm supposed to interview Travis Walton very soon. Um, I took a UFO night tour in Sedona, so I've, I've been. Mm-hmm. down the rabbit hole and read a lot of books obviously watched a lot on like bob lazar and yeah um so i'm uh i'm big into it on both sides i'm like you know because when you write a script you want to kind of know a lot of the information so your characters are have their own interests and so i uh yeah i mean i've been to roswell a few times i'm hoping to film this in partly in white sands and roswell el paso texas and also in iceland so um yeah it's just something i can't get enough of Oh my god! And you just like <laughs> I like saw like Sawtooth's eyes like light up when you well, mentioned Bob Lazar. I mean, what's the name the name of that guy? Uh, Bob, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar. I mean, what what's happening in real life is a, is kind of astounding. If you've been if, for people who have been following this for a long time, which is basically, you know, the the federal government has finally admitted on record that there are, you know hundreds of these encounters happening um, every month that they cannot explain. They have no model to fit these aerial phenomenon into that makes sense. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that, and that, that is like a new development stomping gen. All right, um, I'm all right. Greg, I'm pulling you into a domestic yeah, dispute we, here that you don't need to be involved in. Um, <laughs> so we argue about this constantly. Um, oh all right. I'm going to, I'm going to drive us towards our last two questions. Um, so um, what do you, um, what do you like to do when you're not working? Uh, what are those things you like to do to kind of reconnect with yourself um, and, you know, get away from the industry, um, and kind of recenter. I like to spend a lot of time, uh, in nature. Um, and you know, spend time with family and, and, you know, like you sort of got to kind of re, um, reevaluate, uh, you know, your creativity and, and refuel, um, you know, obviously I, I do a lot of watching films as well, but, um, you know, one of, probably one of my favorite things to do though is, is, uh, you know, road trips and get out and see the world. I mean, I think all that's left for me almost at this point now is, um, there's two states that I haven't been to and that's Alaska and Maine. And otherwise I've 
mm-hmm. pretty much visited all the uh, all the states. So, um, I uh, I just yeah, I think just getting out there and um, finding new interests I think is really important. You know, that's something I, I discovered with the whole UFO thing when I was in Arizona. Um, yeah. I have to I say. Really, uh, Maine is about, uh, you can get to Maine yeah. in about an hour from Salem. So yeah. if you want to just take that off your list and drive over the border. Yep, there you go. You can do it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's super close. Yeah, it's, um, you, you, can, you can get there very quickly. Because there's a part of Maine that kind of drops south down yeah. towards Massachusetts. It's like a very short strip of New yeah. Hampshire that you drive through. You're, you're pretty close up there in Salem. Yeah. Definitely under two hours, so you could easily scratch that off the list. That sounds like a great idea. We, in this podcast, we are also travel guides. Um, all right, our <laughs> no, last, our last question. <laughs> I promise this will be our last one. Um, and you, you can. We ask this to everyone who appears, and you can interpret this um, any way you want. Um, what have you experienced that you cannot explain? What have I experienced that I cannot explain? Um, I think it has to be that feeling when everything was telling me not to do it, but something in the car that night when Tommy said, you have to do the room or it'll be the biggest mistake. And I did it. And I, and I remember thinking he's right or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember, like, why did everything else said no, but why did I agree to say yes? And so it's like sometimes your intuition is so strong on things, they almost guide you. Um, and a lot of times I think we fight against it. For some reason, the few times that I've been conflicted, I sort of let it let it take me that direction. Yeah. Um, and that's something I've you know, tried to, to stay more in touch with. Yeah, that's beautiful. My skin tingled. And I, I, I am convinced that sometimes that we experience time not in a linear way, but... Isn't time a flat circle? Well, kind of like that, like in the movie Arrival. Mm-hmm. Like, I sometimes feel like we're able to tap into that, and we just... I don't know, Greg described it as intuition, but like, we just know something is right, you know what I mean? And we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um. Greg Sestero, <clears throat> that brings us towards the end here. And mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you um, mm-hmm. for taking time out to chat with us. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I enjoyed hearing about your journey involving the room, all of the projects you're working on. Um, right. So thank you. Right. And if you're in the Amherst area... Yeah. So listen up, 3rd. listen up, folks. October 3rd. Um, you want to go and see um, a live screening of The Room, right? Um, starring Greg Sestero and Tommy Wiseau. Um, you must go. It's going to be a lot of fun. We only touched on some of the incredibly entertaining things that happen during the live screening, but there's a lots of other fun things that happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll get a chance to meet um, Greg, Greg is going to show this documentary. I'm um, about the making of the room. There's going to be a Q and a afterwards. So, um, get your tickets. I know the first screening sold out. They added another one. 
right? So get on the ball. That's right. Okay. Um, thank you. Does that tour go- keep going around the country or? Um, yeah, for the most part, you know, with the new film, um, we'll be doing events through October as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, All right. you know, just, we'll do stuff in New York in October, just throughout the country, kind of combining both films. Yeah. Cool. And, and this is, you're going to have time. You're going to be listening to this before October 1st, some of you. So, um, if you're in the Salem area, if you're in Massachusetts and you can get there, um, check out the Salem Horror Fest website and you can get a ticket um, to see um, Greg's new film. He's going to be premiering it there um, yeah. called Miracle Valley. It sounds like I, I want to see this film. Yeah. So Stomping Jen, I might be heading out there. You're going to go out there? Possibly. All right. Okay. Um, our anything? fans. Is there anything else? Oh, you're so good, well, Stomping Jen. I know. I'm just like a freight train. Greg, I'm going to open the mic up to you. Is there anything you want to tell us? Anything um, that we missed? Anything or... that we missed? No, this was great. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. And I can't wait to come to Am- Amherst for the first time. Yeah. Awesome. We can't wait to have you here. Um, thanks, Stomping Jen. Um, fans, you heard everything you need to do. So go do it. Um, we want to say thank you to you. We love you. We love you. Um, what else? Subscribe, download, tell a friend. If right. you like what you've heard here, yeah. tell a friend Share about us. Episodes. Share the episodes. Um, that's it, right, Stomping Pretty Jen? Pretty much. <laughs> All right, Greg. We, I mean, we have a tradition here. The way we sign off is everybody goes around and just says, bye now. That's what we like to say here. So um, we'll invite you to give us a bye now, and then we're going to sign off. All right. Bye now. Bye now. All right, folks. uh, You heard it. Bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility that all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 